Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm Mike Siegel. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you want to uh, check us out on the web, we are at TravelTalesPodcast.com. You can go there. You can see uh, photos of all our guests and read a little something about them. There are links to their web pages. Also, there's a link you can click on to go to us on iTunes. And if you want to help out the show and it doesn't cost you anything, give us a good rating on iTunes. Uh, that helps people find us. Uh, boosts our presence and uh, helps people find the show and always want to build up a bigger audience. So uh, if you can do that, say a few nice things, give us some stars on your rating. I appreciate it. If you want to find us on Twitter, follow us at Travel Tales Pod on Twitter. We're also on Stitcher, and there's a link to Stitcher on the webpage as well uh, at our uh, website. So I have no idea how Stitcher works, but we are on it. So you can uh, find us there. Look for the Travel Tales podcast there. Brendan Hunt is my guest today. And uh, I just met Brendan, great guy. And uh, I apologize if it gets a little uh, soccer heavy toward the end of the podcast. But uh, tough. We both love uh, love the sport, and it's a big part of our uh, traveling life. So don't worry. Don't I want to freak you out too much. It's not all sports on this thing, so uh, relax. Um, but sit back, enjoy uh, the comedic stylings. And the story of one Brendan Hunt. And thank you for listening. I'm a traveling man, made a lot of stops all over the world. And in every port, I own the heart of Italy. All right, welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm talking to Brendan Hunt. Hello. Hello, Brendan. Hello, Michael. This is the first time we've met. Yes. We've known each other now for approximately uh, five minutes. Five of the best minutes of my (laughs) life. (laughs) But I've already found out you're uh, from Chicago. Correct. I kind of uh, knew that. I don't know why. Maybe I read it in a tweet somewhere. Could be. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm tweeting about Chicago left and right. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about, uh, okay, first start from the beginning. Mm-hmm. From Chicago, did you do uh, improv there? Was that your background? I did. I got into improv in uh, eighth grade. We took a drama school trip, a drama club trip to see Second City. And uh, that was a cast that had uh, Bonnie Hunt um, in it. And uh, I just was, I, I was drooling at it by the, by the end. <laughs> Um, started an improv group in my high school called Those Damn Kids with four exclamation points. We were very insistent on the four exclamation points. The three wouldn't have gotten the message across. No, not have conveyed the scope <laughs> and breadth of our mischief. Um, then I went to Illinois State um, for college and took theater there, and it was basically like all theater and no improv at all. Um, and then once I got out of college, someone called me, someone I knew from college, was like, you have to audition for this improv group called Comedy Sports. You have to. It was a girl I barely knew. You have to. You're so funny. You have to do it. I'm like, well, I, I don't know if I do improv anymore, so no, thanks. And I hung up. And the next day, she called me again. I don't know why she was so obsessed by this. I barely knew this girl. But I took that as a sign, and I auditioned for uh, Comedy Sports, and I ended up doing, basically ever since, I've done improv and theater sort of back and forth. Did you know any uh, other... Big actors that came out of uh, ISU. I think the who, didn't Malkovich go there or something like that? Uh, or the Malkovich Steppenwolf went there. Guys? Basically, all the Steppenwolf people went there. Yeah, uh, Malkovich only went there for a year, and I think he credits uh, Northern actually as his his primary. Hey, there. there we go. Um, uh, but he has gotten an honorary degree from ISU, so <laughs> they don't have to take him off the literature. Uh, but Laura Metcalf uh, came out of there. Um, I believe Tom Irwin and Jeff Perry, like some of those uh, Steppenwolf cats, not Gary Sinise. Gary Sinise eschewed college altogether. Oh, of course. Um, but uh, yeah, it was kind of a kind of a cool place to be. Yeah, for me in Northern Illinois, they always had Robert Zemeckis on the uh, oh, yeah. literature as like a proud uh, communications alum. When really he was there for like literally a semester, and he's like the hell with this place. And then he ended up going to USC or something like that. But they still use him. Still use him. Very similar. Proud to that alumni. Situation. The uh, so you get out and you're back in Chicago. You're doing improv, and uh, did you? Now, did you work at the uh, improv group in Amsterdam? Is that how you ended up there? Yeah. Um, I auditioned for Boom Chicago. Boom uh, Chicago, that's yeah. what it's called. Kind of, uh, kind of on a whim. Like I, I wasn't expecting to take it if they gave it to me, but I was like being a good actor and auditioning for everything <laughs> I should audition for. But by the time the, uh, the woman, who, the artistic director at the time, this uh, wonderful little sprite named Josie O'Reilly, who's uh, so very Australian, by the time she was done with her sort of 10-minute spiel about what the job was, like, I want to do this so bad. Oh, my God. I was also uh, just getting divorced. I'd gotten uh, uh, married straight out of college. Oh. And then now I was getting divorced. And it, I just started to realize that perhaps a bit of time in Amsterdam could, could do me some good. If there's a place to recover from a divorce, or really anything, 
That's a good place to go. That's a good place to go. So is it called Boom Chicago because it was started in Chicago or people from there? The people who found it are from Chicago. Okay. Uh, but there's no Boom Chicago in Chicago, which is, yeah, uh, is you know, their own fault for putting the word Chicago in the title. But uh, everyone thinks that there's a... Uh, boom Chicago in Chicago. But yet there is uh, an improv group on every corner in Chicago. That is the yeah. one thing that, you know, everybody has an improv, improv yeah. group there. They also, I did stand up there and I was an oddball. It was like, oh, you're only working alone? What? <laughs> What's that about? So who do you drink with? Yeah. <laughs> did you always go to the same? Because we always ended up at the same bars. It was like Burton Place and the Old Town Tap there on Wells. Uh, we went to the After Hours either, places. Uh, the L&L, which was on Clark back when the uh, our our theater was... At what is now the Turnaround, or maybe it's now it's WNEP actually at Halston Belmont. Oh, okay. And they moved a little further down Halston. We moved into the Gaslight, which is now called the Union. Basically, all the bars we hung out yeah. at are gone. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, there was definitely a ritual aspect to our arrival each time. So you're going there in your mid twenties to Amsterdam, let's say. Let's uh, say. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, was that the first time you had ever been out of the country, or did your totally. family travel at all? No, mm-hmm. no, I'd never. I'd barely been to Wisconsin. Uh, <laughs> I had I'd been to New York once. I'd been to Florida once. I was not well traveled at all. Um, mm-hmm. And then suddenly, you know, blam. So when you got on that plane, and what were you expecting, and what was different? What was the first thing you noticed that was different than you um, than you thought? Uh, it was brighter than I thought it would be. I, I guess I kind of imagined uh, something slightly more like science fictiony. You know, the Matrix had <laughs> well, like come Anne out Frank's yet. Uh, attic. <laughs> I hadn't read the I hadn't oh. read the Diary of Frank before. <laughs> right. Which ended up being cool, for the record. If you're reading the Diary of Anne Frank for the first time while you're living in Amsterdam and you realize that you live in neighborhoods where this took place and you walk through neighborhoods and you're surrounded by it, it, it does hit you in a, in a different way. But I, though The Matrix had not yet come out, I was expecting something like that world in Matrix 2 where, every, you know, where all the dancing happens. It's all kind of dark and, and fiery. I kind of pictured Boom Chicago would be like that. <laughs> I, I, for some reason, picture it would be carved out of a cave and there'll be circular you know, stands and you know, like maybe 30 people there baying at us for, mo- for more. <laughs> You're not going to ancient Rome. It was, you know, <laughs> it's a big city. It is. It turned out to be very cosmopolitan. <laughs> uh, but the theater was big and very technologically advanced. Um, the, the, the city was clean. You know, there's, there's few buildings over four stories tall, which is a, obviously a big adjustment from Chicago in of itself. Um, and it was, just, it was just beautiful all the time. And, and, uh, but they also, their way of life there is based around a concept about a, of a word called chzelich. And chzelich does not little, literally translate to anything in English, but it kind of means to, to create a good feeling from something or not to stress out about things. You know, basically, if like, something bad happens, you can focus on the bad thing, or if you can't change that bad thing by worrying about it, then just keep it chzelich and not worry about it, <laughs> especially coming out of a divorce and you know, out of a typical Chicago childhood. Uh, that was a very uh, good thing for me to latch on to. So at the end of my first year, I was like, I, I was only going to go for one year, but at the end of the first year, I was like, I, I need this in my brain. I really need to kiss this around. So I stayed for one more, and then one more, and then one more, and then I'm there for five years before I leave. So it wasn't, when you say your typical Chicago upbringing, there was a bunch of screaming Irishmen yelling at you every day? <laughs> there were. Oh, that Catholic church. <laughs> it really apparently helped people back in the day. Right. So, so uh, oh. I'm a sinner, and I'll die a sinner. I was born one, and I'll die one. Good to hear. Both my parents were uh, were lapsed Catholic um, children of heavily Catholic moms, um, and my parents got divorced when I was like two, and oh. uh, and then we moved around a lot. And you know, there's there's worse things that have happened to people, but it was a very um, it was it was not a, a traditional uh, childhood. So, what did they say about you going to Amsterdam? What was their opinion on the whole thing? Um, they were fine. I mean, no one was uh, no one restricted me on things I wanted to do. Generally, right. so that that was pretty good. Um, I think uh, my mom, you know, was gonna knew she was gonna miss me, and uh, but you know, it was, I was only gonna be gone for a year. What could they say? <laughs> so you get to Amsterdam. Did they set you up with an apartment, or do you live with the other cast members? Or they set you up. Um, I lived with another cast member at first. Um, uh, they immigrate you. It's all legal there because you you count on a special visa, like the same kind of visa that web designers get, basically, as your special. Uh, you know, um, qualification that is hard to find. That being experienced English language improviser, not easy <laughs> yeah. to find in the Dutch population. Um, uh, but after about six months, I moved in to this apartment that was right around the corner from our theater, where these eight Dutch guys lived in like a three-story apartment that some friend of theirs owned. He was going to turn it into a hotel, and he never did. So I got kind of a great, you know, half Dutch experience of living with these guys. Um, <laughs> they all spoke perfect English, and so I didn't learn any Dutch at all, except for one roommate who just was a real jerk about it. <laughs> he only spoke Dutch to you? Yeah, and all his questions were like, why aren't you speaking Dutch? It's a beautiful language. If you're going to live here, you have to learn Dutch. But he was saying it in Dutch, so it wasn't helping me at all, because <laughs> everyone else spoke English, 
in the whole place. And they have a great accent, I think. They, I think they have a nice... They speak it really well. Uh, English? The Dutch. Yeah. Uh, they're the, the, Dutch, uh, the Dutch speaking of English? Yeah, yeah. They spe- I think, you know, of all the accents, yeah. you know, theirs is pretty clean and pretty good. Well, they learn it so much from TV. Like, they love American television. You know, they're fond of saying that Americans are dummies, but the only American TV they watch is, like, Married with Children. Yeah. Um, they love, love, love Married with Children. People... I would say I was from Chicago... And people's response would not be Michael Jordan or Al Capone. They'd be hey, Al Bundy. Yeah. Like, yes. <laughs> I've got that Chicago. before. Yeah. And uh, my first trip to uh, Europe was in 89. And then everybody, yeah, I got the Al Capone thing. And, uh, and then when I went back a few years later, it was Michael Jordan. And then, uh, yeah, there was Al Bundy and that kind of thing. And then it became Oprah. Oprah. People nice. knew Oprah. I would occasionally get house music. Oh, yeah. I would get that, too. House music? Yeah, uh, yeah, I guess sure. <laughs> R. Kelly, Kanye West, sure, why not? The um, so you get there, but then you're doing comedy though, and I've done comedy in like uh, Australia, and there's always still like a you know language is so specific to comedy. Mm-hmm. You know, did they miss? You know, they miss one turn of phrase and the laugh is gone. Right. You didn't we, have that problem there. Well, we just worked a lot to counter it. We. Um, you know, you lose your uh, reference crutch pretty early on when you realize that uh, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha is not going to hit ever. Um, <laughs> now, what do you mean by that? Uh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> now, Michael. Um, uh, but, you know, we would rehearse, you know, just being super articulate. And uh, in the sketches we would do, just having to really not rush a word. Because you're right, with Dutch people especially, their English is so good that if yours is casual at all, they don't understand what you're saying. They can't estimate that you are what word you are very close to saying. Um, and the best example I have is I was with a girl one time, and uh, we're going at it pretty pretty well. And it's uh, you know, we're we're gonna we're gonna be having sex. It's gonna be great. <laughs> but there's no condoms around, and it's like midnight on a Monday, um, and you know it's not a 24 hour economy. There's no convenience store you can walk down. But she's up for it, and I'm up for it, so like, I'm getting a cab. I know I, there's a Texaco, of all things, a Texaco gas station up at Marnickstraat and, uh, and uh, Lidestraat or something. And uh, let's go call a cab, get in the cab really quick. Hey, really quick, we're just going to go to the Texaco and come straight back. Uh, what? Uh, the Texaco. The, what, what, what is the, the Texaco, the gas station on Marnickstraat, the corner of Marnickstraat. Ah, the petrol, the tax, Texaco petrol Station ah, and he's getting his book out like this is unheard of. Taxi drivers are amazing. Like, what are you? Is it, where? What is it? Like, it's okay. The corner of Marnixtrot <laughs> and Leinbonskrocht. There is a gas. It's the only thing there. It's a Texaco. And he goes, ah, you mean Texaco? Like, <laughs> I have one vowel wrong. I had one vowel wrong, and it, it took us an extra minute to get there. Wow, there's a lady waiting. Condom, sir. Condom. <laughs> Take me to your condom, sir. <laughs> Did, uh, yeah, but it, even though that, I mean, they, they might not get the accent right, but they also, I found when people have to translate, especially in comedy, sarcasm doesn't work. They take everything literally because they're translating in their head. You know, it's like, so you can't say, oh, that's a really good job. And then like, why is he saying it's a, it's a very good job? He's, it's true. I'm a, he's obviously bad. Why is he, is it good? They're pretty sarcastic in Dutch, but in English, like they, they it's one level too many. Yeah. So yeah, the, uh, the sketches there tended to be a little bit on the, uh, a little bit on the uh, simple or spectacle side because, you know, we're dealing with a Dutch audience and there are nights when we have 80% Australians and, uh, we just had to uh, cater to a pretty wide demographic. So, oh, were you getting mostly tourists, or was it? Uh, like depends on the time locals? of year. Uh, in summer, as with most European countries, the population of Holland leaves Holland. Yeah, um, they go to but, the beach wherever. Yeah, happens exactly. To be. The rest of the rest of the time was 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 pretty heavily Dutch. So, over the course of the year, it's about half Dutch, half tourist. So, favorite thing about the city and the Dutch people, and your least favorite thing. Um, the favorite thing, I think, is really, as simple as this is, is just the biking around. Biking from place to place. Um, I think they bike more than just about any population yeah. in, the, uh, in, the, in Europe, but probably in the world. The one stat that gets bandied about is that there was more bicycles in Amsterdam than people. Um, and there's you know, the problem with the bike culture. There's bike theft and uh, things like that. But just getting on your bike, you know, rain or shine, and having to go 10 minutes away or an hour away, very rare that you go an hour away, was just great. And it kept you healthy, too. Yeah. You know, all the cycling and climbing upstairs and, uh, and going dancing all the time. Oh, I was fit. I was fit. <laughs> I closed the day. Um, 
Uh, You're not eating Wiener Circle at, at five in the morning. <laughs> no, no There's beef sandwiches. Of, you know, maybe a shawarma, but <laughs> right. a lamb is better for you. So that works out fine. The donor, the donor kebabs or whatever. The, yeah, sweet, sweet donor. Oh, love those, love those. So you love that part about it. Yeah. What was the food like? You don't think a Dutch food is something that's you know you really no. have a hankering for? No, I uh, I I have a pretty uh, historically timid palate. All right. You yeah. might have to get on that a little. You can oh, pull, sure, You sure. can pull that toward you. Do that a little that like that. There we go. You can oh. take it out. You can hold oh. it Ooh, if wow. you know how to. Okay, well, I'll wait till I'm ready. I'm All right. Ready. Um, uh, there are things happening with the microphone. That's oh. what we're talking about right now. No, people. you can hold it. Here we go. You can hold it. Um, all right, I'll hold it. Uh, no, I'm just saying. <laughs> holding the microphone. I'm doing sexually suggestive. We're talking about the microphone. <laughs> Do I hold it, it like hold this, it Michael? gently. Do I hold it like this? Slower. I feel like it's too close. Slower. Michael. Now faster. Ooh. <laughs> what was the question? <laughs> um, food. What do they food, eat? Food, right. What's the big Dutch? Let's go out for Dutch tonight. Um, well, I came to realize after a while that there was a, uh, a reason why I had not had food at a Dutch restaurant before, and in fact that I had never heard of a Dutch restaurant before, because Dutch food is not good enough to export. Um, <laughs> if you think of, you know, like going Italian, you're going to have a, a sumptuous meal that you, you know, mm-hmm. you're familiar with. If you go Ethiopian, you're going to experiment with new flavors and tastes. If you go Dutch, you share responsibility for the awfulness that you have endured together. <laughs> um, they are a very meat and potatoes country. They will deep fry anything, um, and they... Are, as they are honest about the uh, the failings of their language, they know that Dutch food is not so great, which is why I walk down any street in Amsterdam and there's Indonesian places, Ethiopian places, Italian places. Um, so yeah, Dutch food. The main the main things about the best food there is in Holland is called a bitter ball, and um, that has the word bitter in it and the word balls. And you are still <laughs> delighted listening for the break. <laughs> uh, listening, go on. It's it's filled with sort of like uh, gravy and meat chunks and then deep fried. Uh, you can get a larger version called a croquette, which is slightly more phallic. Hold it. Hold it closer. Um, <laughs> this could be the worst thing for you I've ever heard. <laughs> it's, wow. It's, it's shockingly delicious at 3 o'clock in the morning. Oh, I bet. Only at 3 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Also, it's you like get poutine. it out of a wall. Yeah. Oh, gosh, poutine. <laughs> um, you put coins in a wall, and there's these little windows that, at a chain called Fabo. The croquette, croquette, chicken croquette, and then these other gross things like uh, herring. You can get late night oh. herring, which they don't take the, the the opportunity to deep fry because you don't want to mess with the tang <laughs> on the herring. Uh, but yeah, food there was uh, was tough for me. I lived above a McDonald's, and I'm uh, remain ashamed to admit that I ate at that McDonald's once, occasionally twice a day. No, for the entire just about the entire five years I was there. Oh, that's a rough country food wise. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Wow, if, that's my if, own fault. If that's your fallback, ooh boy. Um, so you didn't like the food. No. What about? Is there a certain character of the Dutch people that you really responded to? Is there something they're known for as opposed to, like, say, German people or the French? Or um, They're known for complaining, and they, uh, they're very honest about that. Too. I mean, frankly, their honesty about their own faults is, uh, mm-hmm. is pretty, pretty great. But their, uh, their complaining is all, it comes back to this gezelligheid thing of, like, okay, we know that everything sucks, so let's complain about this thing and get it out of the way. And now we're having a good time. Right. <laughs> but in certain relationships, especially relationships a tourist might have with a, you know, a merchant or a cab driver or whatever, you don't get past that layer because you're not hanging around long enough. Um, but if you get past that bit, it's great. Like Dutch people are amazing at – whenever they go somewhere to have a good time, they are not dependent on that good time being provided for them. Um, like there will be many times I go to a party with some friends and like, oh, the DJ is horrible. Eh. Oh, well, here we are. <laughs> and just get right into it anyway. Um, but they're just really, really good at that. They're, you know, they're going to have a good time no matter where they are and no matter what is happening because they have chazelechad. They are not going to let the failings of a certain environment affect you know, their experience. And they're very tall people. They're, they're apparently the tall. tallest people in the world outside of like one African tribe. Yeah, they're really yeah. tall. Every Dutch person I knew was about two inches taller than you thought they'd be. <laughs> they get up closer, like, "Whoa, you're, you're a tall dude!" And it's impossible to tell how old they are, especially the women. Like, the, the, some of the most beautiful women there are either twenty-five or forty-five. You, you, <laughs> it's it's just impossible sometimes, like because they're all, especially Amsterdam women, they're you know sort of uh, worldly from a young age, and mm-hmm. uh, and they just keep that with them. And they they're in this, you know, the great weather. And by great weather, I mean good for your skin because it's constantly raining, damp, yeah. yeah. And cycling and dancing and stairs and like, uh. <laughs> So how was it, I know coming from Chicago, we can pretty much handle every extreme, or we're at least accustomed to it. Uh, how was your first winter there as opposed to a Chicago winter? Oh, it was a breeze. 
Uh, it snowed maybe one time the whole time I was there. Oh, that's really? slightly odd. It usually snows like once every couple of years, and occasionally the canals freeze over. Canals never froze over while I was there. I never got that postcard shot. Oh, um, wow. It snowed maybe twice. So compared to Chicago, it was fine. I mean, it just rained a lot, and it's a bone-chilling rain. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the one thing people complain about in Amsterdam is weather. But if you're from Chicago... You're yeah. not complaining about the weather. <laughs> I know. After living there, I mean, you really can't handle anything. I mean, I, I know I've been here almost 15 years in L.A., and I still don't take it for granted. Yeah. And I'm still not used to it. You know, yeah. I still love it. And I can't see that people who grow up here really appreciate it or really acknowledge it. It's like, no, this is not the this way it is. This is special. Yeah, this is not the <laughs> don't way Don't you is. get it? We're outside. We're not slapping mosquitoes away from us. Yeah. We're not, you know, there's no humidity. They're dying back home right now. I mean, the heat wave <sighs> there, you talk to people. It's really bad. I don't miss that. That part I don't miss at all. A couple of years ago, I had that. I had the swingers moment. I was walking through Silver Lake, and I realized that it was December, and I was in shorts. Like, oh no! <laughs> yeah. Oh no! And that was also in a time when I was still like, I don't love LA yet. Um, but that was. I mean, once that domino falls, it's a big domino. <laughs> yeah. So, did your schedule allow you to take? Uh, trips outside of uh, oh, it did. Amsterdam. It was great. Um, all, Amsterdam is also great to travel from in Europe because it's so central. Um, I got to travel a lot with Boom. We would do like corporate shows or some you know special shows. I like, we went to Edinburgh a few times and got to London a bunch. Um, soccer would take me around quite a bit. I I've started to really want to go to some soccer games around the country. So I went to uh, Germany for a game and Milan for a game and Barcelona for a game, uh, Prague for a game. I think all these games were losses, by the way, by the teams that I was following. <laughs> so you're the curse. <laughs> I am. I am. And then just some other like side trips. We saw a lot of Belgium, all of Holland, Stockholm, uh, Cyprus for a couple of nights once. I, I left some pants there that I've still not got back. Um, <laughs> Moscow. I got to go to Moscow for a few days. Cause See, now I've never been. How was that? Moscow was the only place I've been to that I have no interest in going back to. I heard, A, it's like one of the most expensive countries in the, in the world, and it's full of Russians. And uh, everywhere you go, there's Russians. <laughs> Moscow is lousy with Russians. And uh, just having, I've just been to, through Asia for a couple months, and there was mm-hmm. Russians everywhere. Not a fan. I'm just gonna be. <laughs> I'm well, sure there's some nice if you it. go under the surface, but uh, I'm just seeing the surface. And, uh, and the surface does not is care for cold smiling. and harsh, and does not smile. We also were told early on like there's going to be problems with cops. Like they uh, they you yeah, know very corrupt, very and... corrupt that way, and uh, and that was a big. Negative for me. Like, if I can't, if I have no one to turn to, if stuff gets bad, I don't feel that excited about moving around on my own, which was maybe a bit uh, puss of me. But I was way out of town, staying with some friends. It was it was like an hour on those Moscow subways. That Moscow subway is unbelievable. Like each train is about fourteen cars long and travel. It feels like traveling eighty miles an hour, and they are a minute apart. Oh, really? They never they never stop coming. They, there's no breakdown ever. Like that was wow, easily the most impressive part. But it was an hour out of town, and like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing here. This is horrible. <laughs> I was also kind of, you know, pursuing a girl, and that didn't go well mm-hmm. either. So, but I don't think it would have helped my experience <laughs> much at all. And the food makes uh, Dutch food seem not so bad. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had some quesadillas in no, Moscow that were good. you that ate fine. Mexican food in Moscow. <laughs> Gladly. You've got to be kidding. Gladly. Oh, and those, those quesadillas were delicious. <laughs> Just delicious. <laughs> I don't think there's a Russian word for nice to meet you. That's my no. presumption at this point. <laughs> there's not a Russian word or for... Or excuse me, or maybe going? please, or thank you. One of those. Um, so which one of those countries did you like the most? Did you, could you go back over and over again? Um, Ireland. No, yeah, uh, Ireland's great. And certainly, You're a little biased, though. I'm a little biased, honest. for sure. But I did... Uh, a girlfriend and I did uh, a tear through Ireland quickly for four days. We had like four extra days after Edinburgh. Um, and I, I want to go back for a month. I want to go back for a month and oh, have yeah. nothing to do and just drive around to villages and, and really check stuff out. It was, it was just gorgeous, and, um, and I didn't talk to the people enough. Yeah. I went back to perform there at the Kilkenny Comedy Festival once. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, I stopped in there once. Oh, good times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I drove around. I went from Dublin. I drove across to Galway. And that was eye-opening because I drove across the entire country in two and a half hours. Yeah. And I was like, wow, this is a small, this is a small island. And then I went down the, uh, the West Coast. Down to like the Dingle Peninsula and the Connemara Peninsula, and then yeah, up yeah, yeah. Cork, and then um, to Kilkenny. And that was a cool little festival because it, there was no like industry, there's no None. heavy, no pressure, and it was just this guy booking it, and he was uh, he just booked guys he liked, and uh, that was it. And yeah. they're all hanging out in this cool little town, 
And you go out to the pub afterwards, and it was great. And it was like the opposite for me of, of Edinburgh, because Edinburgh was insane for a while. It's I was a, up there for insane, that, too. And B, everyone there who's British or Irish is, uh, is really working an angle and getting a hustle on and trying to advance up a ladder. And, uh, and they're losing money, and uh, it's, Kilkenny was a revelation festival-wise. That was a blast. <laughs> I had a real good time. And you were doing the, uh, is this all Boom Chicago? Uh yeah though it was just two of us who went we we sort just of two. Guessed, we we guessed it in Ian Coppinger's uh, Irish improv show, um, Ian Coppinger a very funny Irish improviser has a weekly improv night in Dublin that I still haven't been to either but it was great I have a quick uh, quick Ireland anecdote I you, love I love you Ireland like anecdotes on I panic, love on anecdotes yeah. <laughs> cool um, we uh, I was with my aunt for this moment in a, a town called Bray. Or she lived in Dublin. She moved to Bray, which is due south. Bray, the hometown of another great Irish comedian named uh, Dara O'Brien. But uh, there is a, a little mountain at the top uh, at, at Bray called Bray Head. And it's not that tall. And um, my aunt takes me to this place called Powers Court Gardens, which is just, you know, really well-manicured gardens that rich people made that are boring. But I wanted to <laughs> climb that mountain, which is back by the train. And, uh, and uh, we, we go into this little bed and breakfast where there's this old woman who's almost like an animatronic device. Like, she's completely still, surrounded by by a lobby of furniture that is all covered by plastic and stuff and, and you know, dust coats. And we walk in and, you know, the switch comes on. Say, Hello, how can I help you? It's like, oh, well, we're not going to stay here, but I was interested in climbing uh, the mountain there. Say, oh, you go down the wee path and it's grand. It's called Bray's Head and all these things. And when you get to the top, you can see whales. And my aunt, who is hilarious, goes, what, no dolphins? <laughs> like, okay, I'm out of here. So I climb <laughs> this mountain. It's about 20 minutes up. I've never really climbed anything before. I'm pretty excited about it. The higher I get, there's a... There's kind of some fog around me, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to get to the top. The fog's going to be gone. I'm, I refuse to look back. I don't want to look at the view. I'm going straight up. It's drizzling a little bit. I, I'm happy. I turn to my left. Oh, rainbow. This is, this is great. Okay, I'll go up a little further. And the cloud, uh, the clouds are surrounding um, Sugarloaf Mountain. The sun is setting behind Sugarloaf. And it's exploding through the clouds. And it's, it's an Irish spring commercial. It's so beautiful. <laughs> but I'm not going to turn around until I get to the top. There's a cross at the top. This is going to be great. This is going to be the most Irish thing ever. I'm completely removed from America and everything else. And I finally get to the top and I see the pedestal on which the cross is and on the pedestal someone has scrawled in huge letters Tupac lives <laughs> huge drawing of Tupac <laughs> the the sense of separation <laughs> from right. home you were hoping to see a leprechaun at the bottom of it pot of gold dancing you know, or, no. or, or at like the corpse Tupac. of a poet yeah. which I guess I got did he get thug life oh man America's everywhere man yeah everywhere. oh wow yeah but did you go did you know where your family was from or did you get that because I think mine was, I had relatives from Kilkenny, the Butler family. And there was Butler Castle. Of oh, the Kilkenny the big, Butlers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, but, yeah Butler Castle is the big castle there? With the, yeah, with the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that was, cool. yeah, so that was exciting. My people are in Sligo, and the time I was there with my girlfriend. Yeah, you we, were serfs we, we to my people. What do you think of that? <laughs> okay, all right, buddy. Uh, <laughs> a long time ago. Um, also, uh, also um, uh, with that girlfriend, we were driving around, and we found, they're like the 16th century remains of some castle. I don't even know where it is, it's in the countryside somewhere. And the guy who ran the place came out, old guy, and his name was James Brown. Um, <laughs> what I sort of James Brown? Would you like to have a wee look around go right ahead? And she and I climb up the, uh, the turret, and the turret of the castle was like the only thing that still fully existed. Everything else, the walls were like a, a foot high. Yeah. Wreckage. You could see the foundation. And she and I get up to this turret, and uh, like we both look out the window, and we see James Brown walking away, and we see there's no one, and we look at each other. Bang! <laughs> we start... If we can talk about these things, we start having sex immediately <laughs> in the turret. And we didn't finish because soon there were people coming up the stairs. But uh, just walking, the best thing that I had from that trip, because she and I fought, it was kind of a drag at times, was totally had sex in the remains of a 16th century Irish castle. <laughs> yes. Yes. Led to us by James Brown. <laughs> James Brown himself. The hardest working farmer in Ireland. It's what he would have wanted. <laughs> That's a good girlfriend. Uh, yeah, she had her moments. She had her moments. Was she Irish or was she? Uh, no, but she looked Irish. She looked like the girl from Brave. Actually, she had oh this, really all this uh, all this red hair, which is how I should have known she was trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever consider staying like a long time? Like you thinking well, I could make a home here for a little while or... in Holland? Oh, yeah, or anywhere in Europe. Um, in Holland, I mean, five years is uh, is long enough. After five years, you can get a Dutch passport and be dual citizenship, and then your the whole EU is open to you. But um, after five years, I just felt like I'd kind of reached a ceiling uh, achievement-wise. Like a lot of fun stuff was happening. Boom was fun. And uh, I was writing a soccer column for a Dutch commuter newspaper for no really legitimate reason. But that was fun. And then, um, 
but it's like there's no English, there's no other English language acting work outside of Boom Chicago unless I want to be, right? Um, you know, a, uh, a sort of a third hoodlum in a commercial <laughs> about twice a year, which I could be doing here and mm-hmm. am. So <laughs> I knew that I needed that ceiling to exist somewhere else. So I have the same ceiling here, but you know, everyone speaks English. All the time, so that's great. Um, <laughs> but now there are a lot of Boom people who were like doing, uh, who had gigs going here. Like half the cast of Mad TV at that time was uh, was Boom Chicago. So it was like, screw it, I'm going to go to L.A. and I'm going to get a TV show handed to me. <laughs> that didn't happen. That doesn't, doesn't turn out that way. You and me both, brother. <laughs> the uh, was uh, Seth from SNL. Was he a Boom Chicago? Guy? Yeah, he was. His last show at Boom was my first show at Boom. Um, okay, Seth. What was Seth uh, Myers? Myers. There you go. And uh, he, uh, but he came back a lot. And he and I actually did a two man show in Edinburgh that was mostly about soccer, um, and uh, you know some like jingoistic stuff to, to right. rile the locals. You know, we were insisting that the U.S. would win the World Cup before England does, which is still <laughs> on the table. Yeah. Um, and then Seth had to leave the cast early, or had to leave the show about a week early because he got SNL. And then 9-11 happened. And oh. you can't do jingoistic shows really about America anymore, even tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. Oh, so you left uh, right after 9-11? You, you came back? Uh, no, we left, well, my, the Edinburgh show was only for a month okay. uh, of, of August. And then 9-11 was in September. Was so you were in Europe during 9-11? Yeah. What was the reaction and, and were people coming up to you and saying, what, what's, what's going on in America, man? Uh, yeah, well, my roommates were, uh, were like, hey, man, you, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I mean... What, what can we do? I was actually, we were at rehearsal um, that day, and I was excused from rehearsal early, so I went to my house, which is a block away, and um, the, uh, it was between the two planes. This is going to be the really hilarious part of the podcast. Hilarious! But uh, the first plane had hit, and my one roommate was home from work early, who's like a, a florist, and he was like, hey, man, you th- there's crazy shit going on in New York! And, uh, you know, sat down and watched the rest of it, and I was sick of playing all that, and, uh, and we were all just really... You know, confused, and we felt helpless and so far away, and checking in with our friends who were in New York, and uh, I think everyone's friends were okay. Um, and the next night, September 12th, uh, a friend of ours who ran like uh, this fun club night that we all were pretty devoted to, we'd go every month, we'd support, was moving into this big new venue, and uh, she'd been planning it for months, and we kind of didn't want to go, we're like, right, we gotta go, we're gonna, we're gonna go support, because, you know, we gotta, we gotta support our friend. And uh, we go there about 12... Americans really goofily dressed, you know, as this club night kind of was. It was called Club Vegas. And we go there, big, you know, 300-capacity place. Uh, we're the only ones there. Um, so the 10 of us, 12, 15 of us, whatever it was, had the night to sort of work out our stress in this, you know, whole club that we had entirely to ourselves because the rest of the population of Amsterdam was like, no, not going out. Not going yeah. out tonight. But it was fairly, you know. As cathartic as that can be, that was that was, was a nice night. Did you notice, uh, like the year following that, the big drop off in tourism and, and a lot of stuff? No, that came. That really didn't come until the recession. Yeah, um, I did notice um, the guys at the uh, Turkish pizza place I go to being a bit less friendly uh, after that. As more and more attacks started happening and more countries getting bombed, like my pizza was sort of slammed down on the counter <laughs> instead of yeah. being handed to me with a half smile. Um, did you feel like, because, I mean, Holland is a pretty diverse country for Europe. I mean, sure, there's a big uh, black population there. Was there any, like, did you find any kind of tensions? Because, like, in, even Chicago, it's a pretty segregated city. Yeah. I mean, did you find it kind of that way there, or are they even more integrated? Because um, a friend of mine was just in Rotterdam, and, and they said that was really... Jimmy Dore last week on the podcast, he, he had worked in, I think it was Rotterdam. Yeah. That they said it was a really big black population in that city, in particular. There are there are cities that have big black population, but Chicago is kind of a good example. Like it is fairly segregated. It's slightly mm-hmm. slightly less maybe than Chicago is, especially in Amsterdam. You know, you'll, you'll, it's fairly mixed everywhere you go, but not that mixed. Um, the thing is, they just have these they have these slightly racist things in their culture that aren't racist to them. But to our, to us, who have a different experience and baggage, it's wildly, wildly right. racist. <laughs> yeah. Like the Christmas thing, and David Sedaris has talked about this better than I will. But uh, for Christmas, uh, around Christmas, they have uh, they have instead of Santa Claus, they have Sinterklaas, and they have Sinterklaas Day. And Sinterklaas is very similar to Santa Claus. He's got a beard, but he's got a staff, and he's and he's from uh, he's from Turkey. Apparently, he comes on a boat. 
Um, <laughs> Bearing donor kebabs yeah. and, uh, and he, he comes into Amsterdam by boat like two weeks before Santa Claus Day, Santa Claus Day, and then every kid is visited by Santa Claus personally. But it's always their dad or an uncle or like a neighborhood guy dressed up as Santa Claus. Yeah. But the kids just want to believe it's Santa Claus so bad they never see through the uh, disguise. But the troubling bit is Santa Claus has these assistants, and these assistants are um, all named Zwarte Piet which means Black Peter, yeah. and are always played by white Dutch guys in blackface <laughs> and bright red lipstick and huge hoop earrings. He's kind of oh, dressed like a jester. Um, and there's eight of them at a time, and kids love them because uh, Svarte Piet brings them candy or throws candy at them. But if they're bad kids, Svarte Piet will take them away um, and steal them off to Spain where they will have to work in the, uh, the chimneys where Svarte Piet worked, which is how he got black like Of course, this. that's how it happens. Sure. But they don't have a history of, uh, you know, they don't have a history of Jim Crow laws and stuff like that and minstrel theater, so they don't quite have the same take on it. I'll give them that much, but it's off-putting. It's, <laughs> it really is. Because on the big day of the big parade, these Svarte Piet's will come repelling down the walls of the big department store, and they're everywhere, and it's just... It's just so yeah. <laughs> There's no other way to put it. You see that kind of stuff all through, uh, especially Asia, too. And uh, wherever it's really homogenous, you know, Japan, I found, uh, I even had souvenirs of, like, they have little black Sambo, you know, dolls that are still called that. And you go, oh, boy, I haven't seen one of those in a long time. And, yeah, just some really, just drawings and caricatures and just going, oh, that's not, ooh, that's, ugh. Yeah, they, they, but they don't know. I mean, maybe they do or don't care, or they just don't. They, I mean, especially Japan is just a very homogenous place. I mean, there's there's just a lot of misconceptions and awkwardness. They yeah. don't know. They don't know. It doesn't. Yeah, it just doesn't click as as racist. And so societally, like everyone's everyone's very welcome, right. and, all, and all cultures are welcome. But there's still, you know, a black soccer player will be referred to as a black soccer player, um, and. Really, and still, yeah. I would think even there because there's so there's so many stars, and they've just been, you know, there's some of the biggest stars there have been black for yeah. It's just you know, that, twenty thirty years. That that visual label still still clicks in. They're not the you know whatever is healthy about PC or not PC has uh, has not uh, clicked right. in there culturally. Well, let's get to the uh, the soccer because I know that I mean that's how I first uh, saw you online um, about because I'm a fan. And I got hooked on it in 98. I was in France during, Ugh. or was in Italy during the France World Cup. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, of course, when Italy would play during the World Cup, the entire country would shut down. And it was in, constantly on every TV channel. And it was, just, it was impossible not to get wrapped up in it. So afterwards, I just kind of followed it. And, but I found that knowing the game has helped me all over, all over the world. Like, it, it really... It's like a worldwide language. Yeah. You know, I can strike up a conversation with anybody in just about any quarter of the, of the earth. Some guy, we, we can find some common ground to talk about. It's that. Yeah. And first of all, they're amazed that an American knows anything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really kind of helps. And I've seen games in Rio, um, Buenos Aires, London. I just saw one in uh, Turkey. How was that? Uh, crazy. It was the uh, biggest heaviest security that I've ever had. And, and I've seen some crazy, like uh, I went to Boca Juniors were? games down in Buenos Aires, but I went to a Besiktas game in um, Istanbul and just riot police. And it was just a regular game, not even one of their big rivals. It wasn't like Galatasaray or something like that. It was just some team I'd never heard of. And, uh, oh, the buses and the riot police, three, frisk three times before I got in. They took the coins out of my pocket because people whip them at the players uh, the kids next to me, some teenagers, they, I saw them on the side. They had pulled everything out of their pockets, and they had, like, old batteries that they, were, they had taken off them. And uh, the visitor section, you know, it's always blocked off. It's always separate. But this one was walled off on both sides, and then it had a net over the top of it so, <laughs> so people couldn't throw stuff. It was wild, man. It was just a bad vibe. And, and there wasn't even, like, a fun vibe. It's, as rough as, the, like, the Boca Juniors games and... Argentina could have gotten. There was still like a singing kind of fun vibe. This was just kind of like ugh, ugly. Yeah, you know, the, it was missing the fun. It seemed. So I don't know. Yeah, the Turkish league is fairly notorious for its uh, yeah. for its atmosphere. But there was also speaking of like racial. You know, there was a black player there, and you heard like the monkey chants and stuff when you touch it. So I kind of lost. It really lost some shine for the Turkish fans, and you know, in my eyes, yeah. that day. But 
not my favorite game to go to, but like London was fantastic. You know, I went to a West Ham game in London. This is football talk nowadays for people who <laughs> I'm going to apologize for the next 10 minutes. But how did you get it? Was it from the eight guys you were living with? Is that how you uh, kind of got sucked into partly. it? Partly. The problem for me at the time, because I'm, I'm a pretty big sports fan. Um, big Sox fan, Bulls fan, Bears fan. Sox. Uh, Northside yeah. or Sox fan. How I'm did that a, happen? I'm a Northside child of Southside parents. I tried ah. to be a fan of both for a long time, but I was always slightly more of a Sox fan. But then when interleague play happened, I went to Wrigley Field once for uh, one of the early Cubs-Sox games. And, uh, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a Wrigley Field home, home field advantage, everybody. Get, get ready to take my soul. But hearing Cub fans yell at the Sox was like was infuriating to me, and um, and the Cubs got up like eight nothing or ten nothing, whatever. And uh, Paul Canerco hits a home run, and I felt so satisfied by that. I was like, <laughs> yes, they're going to do something, and that kind of decided it. It was fine until yeah, until interleague play happened, and then I couldn't. Uh, I, ha- I had to choose sides. So in uh, when getting to Amsterdam in nineteen ninety nine. You know, the internet was not what it is now. You couldn't just, you yeah. know, turn on your broadband and catch any game anywhere. So I had no real sports to follow. Plus, Michael Jordan had retired, and the Bears were in a really bad period. And the White Sox were about to get good again, but I couldn't watch the games. <laughs> there was one bar in the Red Light District that showed American football, but they would show one game a week, and it would be like the Seahawks versus the Rams. And yeah. Nothing particularly <laughs> yeah. fun. And uh, there was one Scottish guy there who liked to sort of show off how much he knew about American football, which only just made him more annoying. And the uh, oh. and I remember him yelling at some point. It was something along the lines of, No! No, it's not a fumble! It's a tuck rule! It's the tuck rule! <laughs> oh, Jimmy Johnson's not been the same since they left the Cowboys! <laughs> and it was not satisfying. And uh, on, referee! <laughs> Referee, no, 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 referee, no, that's not, that's not a 15-yard pass interference, it's a five-yard incidental contact, <laughs> which is just so weird hearing that come out of his mouth, so um, <laughs> I'm like, all right, soccer, I'm giving you a shot, I've seen a little bit of the 98 World Cup, a little bit of the 94 World Cup, I remember the Chicago Sting, though I'd never been to any oh, of I, I went to one Sting game. Yeah? Yeah, I'm, and I just remember, because, you know, growing up, I don't know how old you are, I think we're around the same age, but in the 70s, every Chicago team sucked. In every sport, like Absolutely. when I was a kid, we were awful. And the Sting won the, the won. soccer bowl. They won, yeah, in like '81, I think yeah, it was. Yeah, early '80s. And uh, we were just so excited. One of our teams won in something, even though nobody gave a shit. No, but I, I played. And I went to a game in Comiskey. That's where they used to play. Excellent. And uh, I watched a game outdoor. I just remember Carl Heinz Granitza and Pato Marhedic. Pato Marhedic. Yeah, those two guys. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they won. And I had a Sting shirt. I think I did, but. And then they were two years later. The league folded or something. Yeah, you should see uh, the documentary Once in a Lifetime on the Cosmos. That. Yeah, I haven't seen that yet. Any sports to... fan should see the documentary Once in a Lifetime. It's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so I'm in. Uh, I'm in Amsterdam. I'm going to give soccer a shot. And there were sort of three elements that came together. Uh, one was uh, reading um, uh, Fever Pitch by Nick Hornby. Yeah. Uh, which is a bad movie about the Red Sox, but a great book about Arsenal. Um, and that kind of got me into Arsenal a little bit. Um, and not a great movie, the original, the British version with Colin it's okay. Firth. It's okay. It's solid, but, yeah. Um, but it's nowhere near as good as the book. Yeah. And, uh, and I was getting into Arsenal a little bit, and Dutch people cheer for Dutch players, kind of no matter where they play. Um, and Mark Overmars and Dennis Bergkamp were on oh, Arsenal Bergkamp, time. Yeah. And, uh, and so my roommate told me, yeah, you should watch Arsenal. They had a good time. And I was watching – I was with my aunt once while she was visiting, and we're walking past a bar on a Sunday, and I, a TV just catches my eye in that sort of Pavlovian – Way a TV always does, and uh, Arsenal are playing at Chelsea. And they're losing twenty to nothing. They're twenty to nothing. Twenty, holy two God. to nothing with twenty minutes left. <laughs> it's the tuck rule. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you need to go. You, you can't go to the prevent defense here. It prevents you from winning. But uh, my aunt, right away, she goes, "Oh, you want to watch this? I'll go into this internet cafe, which tells you where we were at that time, technology wise. Oh, yeah. This internet cafe for some dial up." <laughs> <laughs> And um, so I watch it, and uh, Canu comes on for Arsenal with like 18 minutes left and scores a hat trick in the last 20 minutes on the road, each goal more impressive than the one before. Um, you can look it up on YouTube, and it was I – couldn't, I couldn't believe it. The announcers are going crazy. They've never seen anything, anything like this, and that kind of made me an Arsenal fan. And, uh, and then I became a real addict about it, and I'm subscribing to 442 Magazine and Total Football Magazine. Oh, wow. and I'm buying books, and I'm learning all the, all the history and who are the great teams and the great players, and I learn about Johan Krauf and how important he is to uh, Dutch culture. And then Euro 2000 happens, 
which was in Amsterdam, um, and then my roommates really stepped up. They built bleachers in our, uh, in our main room. I couldn't bring friends to games. I had to sign up on our sign-up sheet because we couldn't have overcrowding because of the weight issues in our big living room. They had a projector. My roommates got crazy drunk, and, uh, and Holland made it to the semifinals. They're expected to make it to the final, and they lose in the semifinal. With the, Italy gets a red card like 30 minutes in. Holland gets a penalty, misses. Later on in the game, Holland gets another penalty, misses, goes to extra time, no score. They hit the post, I think, a couple times, and then they lose in a shootout at home. And if they'd won the whole thing, I might even be less of a fan. But losing in such a gut-wrenching way f- had that familiar Chicago yeah. uh, run of emotions The Cubs it. feel to yeah. it. Oh, here we go. It's yeah, on. Here we go. Oh, there's that penalty. Oh, we're going to miss it. Watch. He's yeah. going to miss it. And, my and this year they did. Being, this year they missed everything. Oh, my but. God. Uh, in a way, though, that's, that's almost kind of better because – Getting your heart ripped out in the semis or in the final is a is a unique kind of pain, and having everything suck from the first game <laughs> yeah. is a bit like you don't have time to get excited. You know, you don't, the teeter totter only goes one way, but it still was a, a real a real pisser. So now you got it both ways. You you can still watch Arsenal, and yep. because they have Robin van Persie, yep, another Dutch star, exactly. So have you gotten into? Um, you like well, Ajax is the big team in Amsterdam. Yeah, yeah. So were your roommates at all Ajax fans, and did they drag you into that boat? Or? I, they did quite a bit actually. I went to a lot of Ajax games, and um, yeah, and I would, I would call myself still an Ajax fan. <laughs> um, though eventually, uh, you start following English teams because there's only so much English language media on the Dutch teams. Um, but yeah, and experiences at Ajax games were were pretty great. Like really starting to you know they have fifty thousand seat stadium, people singing quite a lot. Um, sometimes the singing is witty. Sometimes the singing is uh, is less so. Like the rival with Feyenoord has some ugly stuff to it. Um, mm-hmm. um, so first, the good stuff is with PSV, who were great at the time. They had Ruud van Nistelrooy. They were winning the title all the time. Ajax was kind of in a dark period. And uh, there's a big game I went to with a friend of mine. And Ajax is fighting to try to you – know, late. they're down 2 nothing. Can they get another goal? But then PSV goes up 3 nothing with like 10 minutes left. And uh, the PSV fans, you can see they're about to sing something. Is this going to get ugly? Is it going to get riled up? And in perfect – Beautiful English. The PSV fans in their guarded away fan area, surrounded by plexiglass and netting, all sing, Always look on the bright side of life. Uh, hitting you with some Monty Python yeah. to rub it in. And the other 45,000 people there laughed. Like, so the tension was released. and like, all right, you guys get us. How was the vibe in a Dutch stadium as opposed to all these other countries you went to and the ones that I've been to? I mean, you think it's pretty... It's not quite it as safer? fun. Uh, it's definitely pretty safe, but not greatly safe. And there was a riot once at a game I was at. Mm-hmm. Some, uh, some of the IX uh, hooligans in the F side felt exacerbated by the uh, Breda fans who were sitting too close to them. And apparently they shattered some plexiglass and came storming through. And from where we were, we could, we could see it happen. Actually, Ernie Stewart, the American player, yeah. scored a phenomenal goal that game. He scored a uh, 30-yard uh, screamer, and Breda won 3-1 at IX. But despite that, I generally feel very safe. I mean, they have this great system in, in Holland where if you're going on the road, uh, at least for, for Amsterdam, because the Amsterdam Stadium is a modern stadium called the Arena. It looks like a spaceship. And um, to get into the away section, you can't just walk up and buy a ticket. You have to have gotten on a train in your town and presented your ticket there, and your train comes up on a dedicated track to the Amsterdam Arena, and you walk through a tunnel of corrugated steel, and then you are let out into your basically you know, 4,000-person cage yeah. of plexiglass <laughs> and, uh, and netting. And even, that, even there, there's stewards in every single row, and it's very hard for them to, uh, yeah. to cause any trouble. But they are wasting. I mean, those, those trains, they, they rock back and forth the whole way. I mean, everyone's getting just, just blitzed the whole way. <laughs> isn't it a little, though, as much as I think I, I enjoy the passion of it, isn't there part of it, in, as, uh, as Americans, we look at that and go, isn't that a little sad? You guys can't handle sitting amongst each other. Really, you can't? <laughs> Behave well, yourself to to not attack physically attack one another. Well, the good side is that they you know they're creating their own passion. There's no yeah. there's no message in the scoreboard saying get loud now. Um, they sing the whole time. I do like that. It. They're they're you know they also only have to do it for an hour and fifty minutes. They're not. I know, like that. So that that helps. But uh, yeah, it's off putting. So the the Ajax Feyenoord rivalry um, is is uncomfortable for us. I think so. Ajax has become known over the years as the Jews. Like the Amsterdam fans just call themselves the Jews. It's like a de facto unofficial. How did it get nickname. that? Was one of the owners at some um, point? No, they might. No, like, Tottenham had, has like that one kind of this player um, who was Jewish. And the old stadium that they've since torn down used to be near the old Jewish ghetto, which has oh, obviously okay. also been torn down. Um, and uh, 
So they kind of got known as the Jews, and I think it was partly like the Dutch reaction of not wanting to be like other countries. Like as other countries were developing their uh, their hooligan, um, you know, firms, mm-hmm. they were a bit like fascist. Some of them, and the Dutch were like, "Oh no!" Or the Amsterdam people were like, "No, we're not going to be fascist. We're going to be the opposite. We're going to be the Jews." <laughs> and it just developed over time as like the fun, you know, like wait, is this racist or not? They right. don't have the context we do thing. They didn't go full on. We're the black Jews. <laughs> We are. <laughs> we are Jewish black Pete. How did our Jews do today? We, hey, our Jews went to the nothing. We are the super Jews. <laughs> the problem that has resulted, though, is that the Feyenoord fans hate Ajax. So whatever Ajax is, Feyenoord therefore hates. Um, and there's no question of whether it's Semitic or anti-Semitic. It's just about Ajax and whatever Ajax is. So Ajax fans will wear baseball hats with the Star of David on them or unfurl a giant uh, Israel flag. Oh, like, no, I, they don't know who Netanyahu is. Yeah. They don't know anything about anything. They just, you know, we are the Jews! Um, so when Ajax and Feyenoord games go back and forth, uh, eventually if uh, the Feyenoord fans get pissed off enough, and this happened when I was there with my roommates, uh, you will hear from the, uh, the lunatic section um, this, like, hissing noise. I'm like, hey, what, uh, what's, that, what's that hissing sound? Oh, uh, that is the uh, final supporters making the sound of the gas coming into the gas chambers to kill us. <laughs> oh, God. <sighs> oh, that's yeah, in, in America, we have team. something like that. We, we, we go, boo. <laughs> yeah. So that gets off-putting. And Ajax tries to put it down, but you know, it's, it's, a, it's an independent thing. And it's, it, it's, it's definitely weird. But going to games in general, I think any time I'm in a European country, I try to go to a game because I think it is a legitimate cultural Absolutely. Experience. And you learn about when you find out these uh, rivalries and everything, you figure out, oh, why, why are they hate them so much? And then yeah. you figure out, oh, then you go into the history of, well, a hundred years ago, they you know, used to run the city and then we branched off from them and then they were yeah. arch, okay, whatever, or this fought over a piece of land, whatever. And so it's. There's a yeah. phrase in Rotterdam, because Rotterdam is the big port. It's one of the biggest ports in the world. And then Ajax, or Amsterdam is the de facto capital and, you know, more for estates mm-hmm. and whatever. And uh, I met a guy from Rotterdam early on who knew that we lived in Amsterdam. And, uh, and it was clearly his go-to line. But, like, in Rotterdam, they make the money that in Amsterdam, they piss into the canals. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Anyway, where can I get a burger around here? You, <laughs> would you happen to know? So that's basically what that is, like very working class, totally destroyed by the Nazis in the war, and uh, you know, beautiful and still uh, has all the old-time beauty. So how did this lead to a, a writing gig, a soccer column? Or- yeah. Um, uh, I think it's partly, partly to like promote Boom more. We have contacts in the newspapers, and um, I was getting more and more into soccer, and uh, I don't quite know how it started, but, but someone just asked, hey, do you want to write a column for a newspaper? Yes, I do. <laughs> So every two weeks I would write, you know, column. It was definitely it was definitely from the from the point of view of like, what do I know? Yay! Um, but it was translated into Dutch, and um, and well, yeah, it was a super fun little gig. I don't write as much about soccer the last couple of years, but I had a blog that I wrote for the World Cup in uh, 2010 that uh, was for Americans who aren't really into the sport, which I still feel is my audience. Like soccer hardcore people, I don't have much to tell them. They're more hardcore than me. Yeah. But people who are like thinking about it and want to get into it, like, yeah, let me help you <laughs> along. So I wrote this blog about um, what American sports team each team in the World Cup uh, analogizes to. And that got around. Sports Illustrated picked it up. The Guardian picked it up. And I ended up being uh, – can I curse in this? Sure. I'm about to. Great. I ended up fucking being on, uh, <laughs> on Fallon. Not for anything comedy-related at all, but just because of this fucking soccer blog that I wrote. <laughs> so, like, Brazil would be the Yankees of the... Good question. Thing. Oh, uh, okay. On sheer dominance, they might be. But dude, but for, like, glamour and stuff, if you add that to the mix, um, they're the Lakers. Plus, they were, both wore yellow. You're right. So, there you go. And uh, so, I guess the Netherlands would be the also-ran all the time. Let me, let me would be, who would be good? Defined by injuries and bad luck, but uh, the, kind of a hippie vibe to their history. Uh, oh boy, this is tough. Hippie injuries, bad luck. Hippie vibe to their history. Not the Cubs. It can't be no, the Cubs. No, 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 no. What sport? Give me the sport anyway. Basketball. Basketball. Because they've, okay. they've won the Euros before, so they've won the something. Nope, not the Knicks. Okay. The Suns? Nope. Further? The Sonics? Close. Trailblazer. Portland. The Portland Trailblazers. Portland, that's right. Always drafting the guy who gets hurt in the second pick of the. Uh, yeah, just guys getting hurt and then just bad luck and getting close and getting your heart broken every single time. Yeah. Passionate fan base. No, nah, that's good. That's good. England, I can see uh, that. England was the Jets. 
because their fans remember that one championship they won so yeah, hundred years ago. To win every time, even though <laughs> yeah. they're not qualified to ever win it, and uh, very close. It was sixty six and uh, sixty nine, right? Uh, yeah, sixty six and sixty eight. Yeah. yeah, and they had their iconic photos of their heroes from that time. Mm-hmm. And they deified Bobby Moore and they deified Joe Namath. I always say that about the English fans. It's like they they just won't accept that their players just aren't as good anymore. Yeah, you know, it's just like they always they do expect it's okay to want to win. Yeah, but to expect to win, it's like you, you realize you're only yeah. you're not even the top. You're barely the top five in Europe. Yeah, fuck the world. You're not even maybe top ten, maybe being, top ten. Being a fan now for 14 years and reading all this English media, like the like in 2000, 2002, you know, on different uh, magazines, there's always the cover of some English star, usually you know Beckham or, or Gerard. Uh, with his fist up in the air and the, uh, the headline, <laughs> we can do it. We're off to win it. <laughs> and like you see these every two years. Like, no, you're not. No, you're you're not. not. But that's why this last tournament, even though they only made the quarterfinals, is a great breakthrough for them because it was the first time where there was no – They had real expectations. Expectations yeah. at all and they were able to play loose. And someone observed and The Guardian, after goals this time, they just smiled at each other. There was none of this running around, ah! <laughs> <laughs> And like anger release, you know, you know the, the media there. It's like they don't want England to win. Like they want England to fail because it'll be a better story somehow, and we'll sell newspapers if they make you know villains out of uh, you know the next Stuart Pearce or uh, or Chris Waddle or whoever. Well, so unlike the uh, English to find misery in the uh, <laughs> silver lining. So you went to the Euros, but you never went to a World Cup. I wanted uh, to go no, to the one to in Germany. I went in, to the one in Germany. You I was did actually go to that at one? The, uh, oh, I, I went to the USA-Italy game. 2006. Yeah, I was at, that's the only game that uh, Italy didn't win, actually. The, and uh, there were three red cards, two for the U.S., one for Italy, and it ended <laughs> 1-1. And after they had lost to the Czech Republic, like, that, was, that was the game that was like, okay, we can do this! And then they got <laughs> killed by Ghana. But that was, a, that was a great, great experience. First of all, that was when I found out, and everyone should keep this in their pocket, that you don't have to have tickets to the World Cup to have a great time at the World Cup because they have these you know, fan zones outside every stadium now uh, and it was just a party all over the place. Yeah. The best thing was, and you would never have this in America, when the game was over, not only are they still selling beer, but you could walk out of the stadium and hang out with your buddies and come back in and buy more beer and walk back outside. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. And we were celebrating and then we're walking down the streets, me and these guys, uh, most of them I've just met that, that it, right in there, but... Uh, we we're trying to think of new songs because there was no real good songs. There's a lot of like, oh, 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 USA, oh, you know. And uh, for some reason, we got stuck on uh, well, we found these qualifications. If we're going to be as witty as the British with their songs, it needs to be a song that everyone knows in this country. So that's going to be hard to do. And something we can change the lyrics of quickly. And also, people can sing along quickly. TV theme songs is what we got to. <laughs> um, and we got, we got into Greatest American Hero for a little bit, uh, we're, and we're just walking on the streets of uh, Kaiserslautern just drunkenly. <laughs> Believe it or not, I'm walking on it. You know, we uh, struggled through the Jeffersons. And then, um, and then we decided... Flintstones, always a classic. Always a classic. And then we decided that the Cheers theme song is the best song you could ever sing to the American players because they go to these games in you know, Guatemala or whatever. Uh, they get piss thrown on them, batteries, pig heads. What have you. And then they come back home and no one recognizes them. They're the least famous soccer team in their home country of any country in the entire world. But if they come out at halftime in Guatemala down one nothing, soaked in, in urine and they hear it, everybody knows your name. You <laughs> Like, that's a little something we can do. And we can all get behind that in a hurry. Now there's a lot more uh, U.S. players playing overseas now yeah. i mean do you follow a lot of those guys or have you gone to see any yeah of them? i try to at least keep tabs um i uh we're I, getting better we're getting there yeah we're getting well, there I mean, michael bradley is just a flat-out stud and if him and dempsey and donovan can can just continue growing together and, and donovan i think has one last world cup in him for sure like you know tim howard back there i mean having a good goalkeeper is is really something that means that on that guy's night you can do anything yeah that's why in, in, like in tournaments you can you can ride a hot goalkeeper yeah. a long way yeah because it's you know anything can happen so uh i mean if they do some good in this next world cup in brazil in our correct time zone like you're gonna have you're gonna have americans crowding you know the, all the bars in a given neighborhood to watch a quarterfinal against you know croatia or whatever well you always see the signs that like the rest of the country slowly they're catching up to us because yeah. like the uh, euros just finished and uh i read somewhere the espn's ratings were the highest they've ever been yeah and it helps like it's a it's a super slow 
sports season, like July yeah. and late June, the, everything's over. The finals are done. Yeah, it's uh, so there was not a whole lot else, but still, that's encouraging. And I went to a bar down the street uh, to watch it, the final, and it was jammed, completely yeah. jammed. So it's catching on. It's going slowly. Yeah, and You can do that now. You can just go to your local bar and watch the big soccer game as opposed to you know having to find the soccer bar in your town. But don't you get tired? I know I do sometimes, just like having to defend it, like liking it. You know, it's just like... Uh, yeah, I like it. It doesn't mean I hate America. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> Just because I like right. this doesn't mean I hate football yeah. or baseball or something like that. It's like there's room for both. I got 10 channels of poker on yeah. TV. I think we can squeeze in a couple hours of the most popular game in the world. I get tired of people um, making fun of me for liking it despite its flaws. And the you other know, is you know, flopping and, the, and yeah. there's not that much scoring. But it's not as though baseball and football and basketball are perfect sports by any means. No. You know, Baseball's thing, brutal to, to have somebody who doesn't know the game watch it. Especially it's, on TV. And oh, football, I can't watch it. I've played it my whole life. American football has so many rules. Like on, on any single play, you've got to explain, you gotta explain you know, defensive holding, the difference between hands of the face and holding, um, you know, illegal formation. Oh, illegal formation. Okay, boy, you're not going to like this at all. And uh, soccer, you just get out there and you play. You know, and it's easy to understand. And the reason why, or you know, the, the benefit to goals coming so rarely is that when a goal comes, it is amazing. <laughs> it is the best thing in the world. That is why these people go crazy because they've never seen this before. And if there would be more scoring, that wouldn't necessarily make it better. Like it's about the effort that's going on. And you, no, I don't want a two-goal shot for scoring back from behind the uh, half line. Yeah. I want goals to be hard, and I want us to enjoy them when they happen. And also, you know, oh, the two-hour thing is great. Like knowing, yes, you know, you're in, you're out. Yeah. Especially like on the girlfriend front, like to be able to say, like, baby, I'm gonna be back in two hours and fifteen minutes. No, there's no <laughs> overtime. There's gonna be no overtime, baby. Well, I know the uh, in England and pretty much every uh, stadium I've been to in foreign countries, they don't let you drink during yeah. the. Uh, did they do that in, in Holland? Could you drink during the game? No. Okay. It's all non-alcoholic beer. You, you get but at the World Cup, I see people in. with in the stands. Well, in the because Budweiser is a big sponsor. Is that it? Is a big sponsor, so they sell that beer. Though Germany, the German politicians argued. And one, to have German beer also available in the stadium. Yeah, you can't. You're going to serve Budweiser to Germans? German? Oh, my God. Come on. They wouldn't even wash their car with it. We're bringing Chef Boyardee (laughs) as the official snack here for the Rome World Cup. (laughs) Uh, Uno momento. Uno, uh, pardon. I'm sure you get when you got back to America, everybody asked you about uh, the drug thing. In Amsterdam, that's probably no, like... No, no, it never came up. Never came up. <laughs> I don't know if you know this. Uh, <laughs> marijuana, you can get it there. Um, do you almost look at that as like a, a shame that that's the first thing that jumps into people's minds? It's like, I love Thailand, but every time I say I go to Thailand, oh, were you uh, going after uh, having sex with young boys? Yes, that's exactly <laughs> why I love it so. Love Gary it. Glitter and I... That's all there is there. That's all there is there. There's nothing else besides sex with underage children. Uh, it's understandable to a degree. I mean, you know, once Pulp Fiction came out, yeah, then that's all anyone really wants to, uh, right. to talk about. And it is interesting the more it's taboo, but the less it's taboo here, the less it's interesting to people. You know, I mean, now that you can buy weed anywhere I can get it in around the corner from here. Yeah. I mean, that's not that big a deal anymore. But I don't mind talking about it because for me, it's a subset of a larger thing that's great about Amsterdam about the Dutch, which is, you know, because Dutch people don't go to these coffee shops that are everywhere. They are re- almost exclusively for the tourists. You know, 10% of their, of their customers are, are locals. Um, so they don't take advantage of it, but they, just, they don't want anyone to tell them what they can or cannot do. Thus, they're going to leave that open. And, uh, and with the sex trade and stuff, like, that is also out of good logic as well. You know, no country, no culture has ever put a lid on prostitution. So n- they're not going to be so arrogant to assume that they can stop it, but they can localize it and they can put it somewhere that keeps the, uh, the customer and the professional safer and, uh, and, you know, and get tax money off it and mm-hmm. things like that. And it's just more honest about how humans are and uh, not this sort of, you know, American two right wing religious thing of, of uh, nope, we have to end this right. and we will end it. Well, no, we're not. We're wasting all this money. I'm on my soapbox, people. You can't see it, but there's an actual soapbox in the room. But we're not going to stop any of this stuff. And, uh, and I think legalized drugs are coming in, the, in our lifetime right. anyway in America. But it's, uh, 
it's a hypocrisy that they will not participate in. But and I, I think did that's he- good. I did hear that they are closing something down. Something's being regulated. Something's going. They, uh, I had read that in the New York oh, Times. The coffee shops. And I, yeah, the, the, the coffee shops have been slowly getting a little more regulated um, because you can't smoke in restaurants now. They finally got that done. So okay. coffee shops now have like a smoking area and a purchase area. So you can go in, you can purchase here. But then if you want to smoke, you have to go in like through a glass partition, which is sort of, sort of odd. But I read in the New York Times like a month ago, like it's happening. It's cracking down. They're not going to be coffee shops. And uh, the guy who owns Boom Chicago, this guy named Andrew Moscow, this great guy, and very smart, has his finger on the pulse of everything in Amsterdam. He was in town, and I brought up this article to him. He's like, nah, it's bullshit. Like, wait. But it was in the New York Times. Nah, and the New York Times should have done their research. It's bullshit because the mayor of Amsterdam uh, and the chief of police have both said publicly they're not going to enforce that law. And the government in The Hague wants them to do it, and they're not going to do it. <laughs> Also, Andrew doesn't really talk. That's like a great that. impression of that guy who I don't know. By the way, that's, that's dead on. That. He's one of those guys who everyone has the same impression of him, and it's no longer accurate. It's just it's just common. It's just right. how we share. You're doing an impression of the impression. Yeah, exactly. Okay, gotcha. So, but there was like I do. There was like an. They do have a problem with it, addicts, and um, there is like a heroin issue. Yeah, that's going on. Yeah. There, um, which is but they're healthy. Not that there that isn't too. one here, but you know, they mean, they do the they they do the, the needle sharing. Clean, yeah, yeah they do the needle sharing. Which is also like an honest way to look at it. Like these people are addicted, so we yeah. probably won't get them to stop right away. Therefore, we can try to stop them from spreading disease by giving them clean needles at least. Um, that's just one of the most you know, honest things you can do, I feel like. But uh, it is an ongoing problem. Um, yeah. I don't have my finger on the pulse of the heroin issue, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> Not like your pal Andrew. <laughs> How would, he, how would he talk about the... Little Jay Leno. There's a little Jay Leno in him there. Yeah, yeah, there is this and they're giving the needles and you know, have you seen these things? <laughs> what are they doing now? It's going to be easy and then you get down right here. They said uh, they, they, these needles are, uh, are, gonna, are just going to help people not spread disease and I said, well, that's the point. <laughs> you get it? Point? Pointy needles? <laughs> point, uh, what else is going Kevin, on? Uh, you know, <laughs> um, well, this has been fun. Thank well, you so much I, I for agree. stopping by. Thank you. Uh, is there any other um, soccerness I can? Uh... Boy, there's a ton, but you know, I'm <laughs> trying to I'm trying to be merciful on the, uh, nerd on the out listener off here because we we absolutely can. Um, where can people find you? Where are you performing now? Do you have a um, website or something? Um, I'm on the Twitter. I, I have uh, I have segregated my my Twitter life into two worlds. The soccer stuff is at uh, the unlikely fan. I'm thinking of doing that too. Getting a separate one. Yeah, it's just because during the Euros, I think I was boring uh, a lot of my uh, followers. Uh, yeah, I would lose a lot, I would lose a lot of my precious yeah. followers. And then my uh, normal witticisms are at uh, Eminence Hunt. Eminence Hunt. It's a put on. I got ah, um, sure. And uh, I wrote a play that's going to open in January at Sacred Fools Theater um, called uh, Dirty at Thirty. Oh, great! Congratulations, Thank Sacred you. Fools. That's in L.A. That is in L.A. And that's opening Hollywood. when. January 20-something. January 20-something. Oh, wow. Already in the next year. Yeah. Great. I'm booked, bro. I'm booked. That's Brendan Hunt, everybody. Thanks, man. Thank you, Mike.